Christopher is, uh, is a former Buddhist monk, I think was also a journalist in Vietnam, and uh, currently teaches engaged spirituality and insight meditation retreats throughout the world. He is an active supporter of the international green movement. It was actually Laos, not Vietnam. Uh, The subject for the evening talk is the poetry of city life. I think it is quite frequently expressed by those who uh, abide for any length of time the problems and the difficulties of actually living in a city. And sometimes when we look at our relationship to what we call the city, we're of course looking at the world around us through particular formations and images of our mind. There is a repetition of those formations and images. They become for us quite substantial. And then through language, through communication with each other, plus our thoughts, we build up our picture and our image of what the city is, what life is like in the city. And this city, the city, becomes then our world, and this world we live and move and breathe and think and feel and have our being. And we see too in the world that we live in, globally and um, locally, there is often a very strong kind of gravitational push towards living in the city. Various circumstances, of course, economic and so forth. But there's a kind of pull towards living in the city because it appears to provide more opportunity for one's welfare, one's development in different ways. But the voice which, which one hears again and again in the city is that in the city there, uh, there is much which is one is disapproving of and in that kind of relationship to the idea of the city, there is a rebellion inside, and sometimes the city dweller yearns for the alternative, yearns to get out of the city. And there are some, and there will be some of <coughs> you in here as well, of course, who, if you may recall some days, weeks, months, years ago, who said to yourself, well, I need to come to the city, I need to spend some time for whatever work, study commitments and so forth and after I've completed that course, that activity then I'll go back to my roots, I'll go back to a rural situation, I'll go and live by the, by the sea, I'll go to uh, some other place somewhere in this huge immensely beautiful country and I'll dwell there and some of course as you know deep down in your hearts have not made that um, move the probability is you won't be making that move. <laughs> <laughs> and the, comp the compensation for that is two or three weeks a year, which one calls uh, an escape um, into the uh, nature and to the vastness of things. And in that, genuinely and hopefully, some genuine renewal emerges. So there's the situation. We live in the city. We often... We, I don't live in the city. You live in the city. <laughs> One of the few occasions when I can say you and not include myself. 
that in the relationship to the city, what we keep doing with the substantial image and picture which we provide to each other of the city is, I think, if we look at ourselves in speaking of city life, frequently the unfavorable is accelerated as a perception, and perhaps too infrequently is the favorable. And there's somehow, there's some kind of odd gratification which it gives us to complain. <laughs> and we find that over many circumstances, the complaining mind keeps bolstering my idea, our idea of the city. And I think we might say with regard to that, that the city again and again gets a very bad press. And I think we need in our language and communication to look differently, but also to look inwardly at our relationship to that. And since the, the subject of the talk is um, the poetry of uh, city life, I have been um, far more ambitious than I am usually willing to be, and have dared to bring some poetry, and even worse, some of the poetry which I have written. <laughs> <laughs> and um, just see, with, just with, re with regard to that, and others of you who also uh, from time to time um, appreciate to let the creative impulse of poetry arise, I find for myself that I can write whatever letters, maybe an article, story, or... Um, some material, preparation for a book, or whatever it might be, and feel reasonably, acceptably comfortable with it. But there is something about poetry itself, which I think most unfortunately has got elevated in terms of language into a special category. And so that people who like to write poetry, like myself, but would never dare go as far as to call oneself a poet, because the associations with that is of the elite world of the Whitmans and the Blyes and the, and the Blakes and I uh, can't think of any other poets. The, <laughs> 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 the, 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 the Keats and the... Uh, Dante. Thank you. Well, here we go. <laughs> right, right. right. And, and so when, when in this dreadful world that we live in of the comparing mind, Sometimes we find ourselves in a particular field of interest or creativity, and we are inspired by various people, in this case poets, but unfortunately the inspiration easily leads to comparing and judging, and in the light of such illuminated uh, writers of the language, we pale, pale away into insignificance. So think in any kind of activity where there is inspiration, whatever field you and I may be working with, Let's know the difference. Let's have the capacity and the clarity to distinguish inspiration and some of the unfortunate side effects, comparing and judging, in which most times, nearly always, we feel worse off. Having um, said that, it allows me to feel more, <laughs> more comfortable reading the poem. <laughs> so in city life... Say <laughs> la vie. In city life, when, we, when the image which comes and comes to my mind and maybe to yours, that in city life, the view, the kind of image, both in eye and in ear, is one which in a way, and as the Buddha has frequently pointed out this characteristic of human beings, is to look and to isolate. He speaks of this frequently, to, to look 
and so isolate. Isolated in Nepali is called uh, nimitta. This looking and isolating. This isolating means that we focus on a particular and build from that. So sometimes we think city, city thinks in the way of concrete, straight lines, the streets, the traffic, etc., etc. So sometimes there is a movement inside of ourselves which endeavours to regard differently. Something spontaneously comes from ourselves and one poem here I would like to, uh, if I may, uh, read to you with a small uh, contribution and something which I suspect and believe that many of you will be immediately familiar with. It's called I Walk the Block. <coughs> Steel might of city ardour of concrete matchboxes with carved structures of sharp turning points, straight lines of parallel exhaust pipes, with traffic lights rotating clockwork orders. Purposeful paces clicking the sidewalk, left, right, left, right, turn, 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 block of time to form cash point queues inside automatic doors and the metal trolleys. Office furniture nailed in glass houses, press alt to choose commands, help windows, faint hum of fluorescent lights, traffic smile, and hurtling skyward bound lifts up and down with plastic money and cold fax machines. Worship of efficiency of hardback chairs, files with metal drawers and safety pins, and plastic coffee slopping menu of appointments. Remembering to breathe, in out, in out, hallows down the regimented orderly corridor with its press suits and manicured nails. Momentarily, my winged joy of imagination rescues me from these structured formations, a tropical landscape of fruit-bearing texture with green frogs, of lotus ponds and the cascade of the waterfalls and wilderness banishing this bordering fate. This mindful breath elucidating primitive pollen, this beloved embryonic life re-emerging, undoing harsh parameters of office blocks and the punctual performance of the underground so that the flamingo can fly above Main Street. <coughs> so sometimes our relationship and our looking at our world, our city, city world, it's a rather narrowly, narrowly defined world. And it's a world in which the perception fixes humanity. It fixes the human world, it establishes the human world, and in that, streets, office, office blocks, apartments, etc., in a way, that isolation in hinders us from seeing that which is of the organic world right in our city. Sometimes that shows itself in that flourish of the creative imagination. And all that, too, is with the city life. It's a contrast to it. But equally, I think, important in our city life is to really observe, and particularly observe with a heartfulness, those things of the city life which are not human-made, not concretized, not of information, not of knowledge, not of technology. And if we neglect that, if we can't see that with each other, if we can't see that in our world around, I think we'll live in constant reaction, if not volatile negativity towards life in the city. 
The city embraces much more than the image. So I say in the creative Im imagination, let us notice that. Let us notice the trees in the park. Let us notice the plants at home and really give care and attention to that. Let us notice the, the lawns. Let us notice the, the night sky and the morning and the evening. Let's really bring that into our cities. And so, so thus, as with the teachings too, each breath that we take in a mindful and heartful and conscious way, in a way, each breath that manifests, I believe, is a real reminder to some deeper roots. It's a real reminder of organic life and that that too is as much the city as those severe, the severity of the straight lines, as the, as the accumulation of concepts and knowledge and all of its distribution. So say, when we breathe, in a way, we breathe life, we breathe light into this fixed environment that we've made together. And as I say, let the organic life and the beauty of that, let us really remember that. And as the, the, the Greens say, in, w in a way our home, our real roots of our home, is in a way not so much in that hospital where we were born or in that apartment or in that town or country, but in a way if we're looking into our life and our real roots come from the tropical rainforest. 60,000 years that ago, approximately, it is said, that's where you and I emerged from. And sometimes in our appreciation of those organic things, sometimes some of the artwork in our home, sometimes some of the, the films and the documentaries which we love to see, I think some of those nature films really do help to touch us deeply. They remind us of something. And therefore in our city life we can be touched in many, many ways, but let the nature of the day touch us. Let the breath be our reminder in any city situation. Sometimes when we are walking the block, of course, we are walking the block and the most familiar times may be in the morning as we leave our home, but also when we come to the when we come to the end of the day. And one of the things which is spoken of, of course, a great deal in the teachings, such as the teachings given here at the, the center here and elsewhere, is the power and the importance of mindfulness. And sometimes, you say with mindfulness and with an awareness in life, what we see with mindfulness in a conscious way is that we're establishing a relationship. That's what mindfulness does. If one says to oneself, one looks at one's day, and we, from the morning that you and I wake up in the morning to the time that we actually take rest at night, if we say, as the teachings have said again and again for thousands of years, all things in life genuinely matter equally. All moments of life support and dependent on each moment. If all things are really worth a human being's interest and attention, from the most subtle to the most major, what's going to make that link? What's going to help show you and me that we care for all things of life. So the spiritual teachings have said again and again is be conscious, be mindful, and in that be caring and respectful to the ordinary and the everyday because it's worthy of our attention, very important, it's worthy of our attention no matter what it is, but also because when we are conscious, 
when we are truly attentive to the ordinary and the everyday, we're on the edge of discovery. When we live blindly, mechanically, habitually, when we live as, of the ser as the servants of machinery, which we can easily do that, we'll never be on the edge of discovery. We are servants of the machinery. So another poem on this on the theme of of mindfulness, of awareness, of witnessing. It's called "The Grace of Nowhere." <coughs> Call me to this moment with its slung togetherness. In whatever we are embroiled in this parameter of time, are we but afraid to fall into time's nuance? Take comfort in our absorbed vocation to all this. All forms want to stay on top of things, to not be hemmed by the moment's edges that are never to be traced, so unmarked with its grave doubts over funeral services. Mindfully, I remain steadfastly edgeless, with dreams and thoughts spread-eagled through the moment's glistening face, with ambrosia impacting as momentary existence. With grace and wishes, I cannot throw myself into this harbour of seeming varied presence, but I cannot yank myself from its witness. Endearingly, I never belong to here now, yet I confess nowhere else holds me. What is this delectable sweetness that leaves me nowhere, this unencumbered truth, this steadfast home, this timeless rooting that knows no relationships, nor engagement, nor disengagement, nor funeral service. Sometimes in our establishing our relationships, in being a conscious human being, we become conscious of the content. Sometimes the content in our life, in our city life, is dealing with the things which we call the real world. That which we have made and given much substance to. The relationship or absence of it, the job, the career, the financial circumstances, the meditation, Easily we give substance to that. And when we say, this is what it is to live in the real world, that which we've really impregnated with something which emerges from us. And sometimes this real world of this, and then this, and then this, it obscures a vision. It is, we can't see beyond the edges of the real things which really matter in our life. And then we take an interest in the whole of the day, the witnessing, not only of those things which <coughs> we call the real world, but all those things which we neglect and ignore. So the edges are not so defined for us. And in that witnessing and in the silence and the stillness of that witnessing, of that mindfulness, sometimes there's a sense that can come through that. Something other. Something, something vast. Something so vast that, as it were, the reality 
of a funeral service loses its meaning. So you see, with spiritual teachings, with our looking into life, looking into the nature of things, though it's very important with mindfulness and meditation to reduce the pressures and stresses in our life, to live in a more harmonious and integrated way with ourselves and with others, and to give care to our life, and all the immense value of that, in a very practical and down-to-earth way, and that's one of the great credits of centres such as this and elsewhere, but let's never forget the, the deep, profound, liberating imminence, the way of silent witnessing of the nature of things, in which in that silent witnessing there can be a discovery which transcends all risk. Let's never neglect the mystical, the transcendent, so that even though our heart may be truly focused on living skillfully and living wisely and living in an integrated way and all the profound personal and social economic significance of it, but never let it be at the expense of something which is of mystery. Something which our words and our language and our <coughs> skills can never hope to approach. So I say that in mindfulness and that clear clarity of heart and mind in that moment of sheer mindfulness we are standing as a human being right on the edge of immense discovery. Sometimes when we're going, we're going home, wherever our uh, home, home may be, and I think home, of course, matters a great deal to us, and like many, many other things in our life, rather unfortunately in a way, with, with home. Home has an image to it, it has a, a parameter to it, a defined area. And of course, as human beings, one of the great tragedies of our life is that we have become extremely territorial, territorial with our, with our space, with our generosity of spirit, with our hospitality. And sometimes the embodiment of that, the fixation of that, is around the concept of home, the idea of, of home. And, and I think our awareness of what is home truly needs to be expanded much, much further than the convention. And if you notice in yourself, in your daily life, and I notice in mine, some adherence to the concept of clinging and holding to my space, my home, my property, my piece of the earth, or whatever. This possessiveness itself is something which truly, truly needs to be really examined. Can I live as a human being and be utterly free from the parameter which comes with the idea of my? Can I, as a human being, being be utterly free, utterly free from the parameters which is defined by my, my, not just the talk and convention, I can say my tape recorder, my machine, my poetry, my home, my whatever, ordinary talk of course, but one knows in its movement of the language of the word, it's unpossessive, it's, there's an unpossessive way of relating to that. And I think home and things of home suddenly, sometimes generate out of us extraordinary possessiveness, extraordinary degree of clinging to us. And it doesn't really matter 
to some degree how much one has one as one knows those of us who have been in the monk's life where in the monastery we had eight eight possessions a spare set of robes the begging bowl the razor and a couple of other things which I've long since forgotten what they were the amount of possessiveness that can come when you've got little <laughs> believe me you know. <laughs> And there's a peculiar, sometimes reverse of values, if I may say, in spiritual, spiritual, spiritual values. And a very clear example to this, I remember um, years ago uh, when I was ordained. Sometimes we look at people and, and there's a, a, um, a peculiar um, envy of what they have, whatever it might be, appearance, clothes, and other, and other items. And the thought arises, I wish I had that, that, that. Clearly, that's an incredibly expensive uh, shirt, which incidentally came from Kmart, and um, other uh, items which we look look at the car, powerful symbol for all of this. And I was just delighted and privileged to be driven here in, a, in an old banger, 1972. <laughs> and those things, I think, are very important. Sometimes in the monk's monk's life as well. I always remember we got. A monk got out of a, a rickshaw that I was uh, uh, in somewhere in the uh, countryside in uh, Th Thailand. And as the, the monk got out, his robe got caught in the wheel, and the wheel was turning, so there's a terrible rip and tear through 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 the robe. And um, and, the, and so the robe looked really you know worn and ragged through this, the wheel, getting jammed in the rim of the wheel. And just at that time, uh, another monk was walk, walking by and he saw this and he rushed up monks are not allowed to run in the rules but anyway he rushed up to the monk and he said please please ex swap robes please exchange robes let me have this ragged robe because if you have a really old ragged robe oh incredible status <laughs> so then he's clasping his hands clasping the hands together please let me have a let me have your robe. I'll give my, take my robe and I'll take this one, just as it is, please. So sometimes there's this reverse of, uh, of values. And I think sometimes in the world that we live in, in the, the impact that the world makes upon us, envy can take many forms. And in city life and in the comparisons of city life and in the way of city life, one of the things which is... The, sometimes a malicious undercurrent in city life is envy. Are we living with envy? Are we any the lesser or any the better for getting what another or others have? Are we any the better for and any the more seasoned and mature and wise in life by following the, the, the norms of others and all the com ruthless competitiveness that goes with it? And to be tired of all of that because competitiveness is a license for envy it's a breeding ground for it and sometimes we can only see each other through those rather distorted glasses and not the organic life not the people sharing life together participating all this together we see through the mode of wanting what the others have aren't we tired of all of that end of the day we, go, we leave home in the mornings our day passes by and we come home 
at the at the end of the day. How is the end of the day for you? What's your usual responses at the end of the day? Maybe do give a small example. Um, Amnesty International, which I and I'm sure you do love very very much, and for their very important and profound work that they are doing on those who are deprived of the freedom of their day. I went to speak to Amnesty International at their International Secretariat in London. It must be perhaps a year or two ago. And I spoke to them about dealing with stress, pressure, suffering, dealing with this exceptionally painful information and painful stories and accounts which come to them every day of their working day. And in that conversation then we had some discussion and dialogue together afterwards and I said let me please ask you the questions rather than uh, you ask me and when I was asking those uh, questions I asked them about the end of the day and there was a kind of fairly unanimous agreement that they would get home feel utterly burnt out very very tired and having to deal with them some of the most painful chapters of human history and human events and then it w what would be quite typical to do would be to go home and what happens? Walk in and turn on the television, put on the on switch, turn on the news, and what is the news? Suffering. One suffering after another. And yet there's a peculiar kind of relaxation in that. <laughs> and sometimes, and a number of you here of course are working in work and fields of serving other people and environment animals, and I think one has to take great care and look at what happens when you are out of the role. No role has any permanence. It arises when the conditions are there and it ends. Liberation is, is freedom through the role, but freedom in the absence of it as well. And sometimes in the absence of it, we just fall back into a habit pattern which doesn't serve our realizations and our liberation. End of the day. This working life of recycled brain cells, of intensive becoming of language formations, key twists, home, the rectangles and squares of desktop existence dissolve into the leaves and trunks of pristine nature. The day's conventions have lost their meaning, following the space of paged memories, directives, home, opportunity for leisured stillness a settling into the lucid shape of this armchair with its soft uprightness and unshakable steadiness. The brain function is stilled, measuring cells serving no purpose. A quietitude enters the soles of the feet. Nothing enters this sanctuary, sublime rectitude, this public persona of serious authority rendered unavailable, void of existence. With quiet relief and subliminal appreciations, this substantial existence, this street mind, is quietly empty, with barely a shadow between the door and this hallowed spot. Masks of persona no longer stab this flowering silence, this otherness which cannot be fathomed, nor absorbed into busyness or serious mechanism of current theories and problem solutions. Joy mediates into this untowards presence with its endless landscape. From this still chair, this tangible embrace of non-persona, a smile 
fills the sanctuary and the double glazed windows open by themselves. So I think our home and the circumstances of our home can really provide us with an opportunity and I think really can be seen as, as, a, as a sanctuary. As a, a sanctuary in the real deep sense of the word of a sanctuary. And I noticed both as, as a parent, as a person like yourselves who has a regular number of friends and mm -hmm. visitors, that still within the context of all of that, there is still those times and those moments at home where there's the opportunity just for that stillness of things, just for that quiet presence which our public persona and the authority that we have and the uh, obligations and commitments that we have actually all fade away and they have no real significance or meaning for us. They have lost their meaning in those times. And that loss of meaning in those times is very, very significant for human beings. So that we see the rele relevance of meaning actualized in our life through roles and sometimes in the quietness of just sitting in the chair doing utterly nothing in the sanctuary of one's home. But those moments, few minutes as they may be, are very, very vital for our renewal. And, and a renewal in a way, I feel, which is such that the image of the city isn't so biased and prejudiced. That we, we have no wish to, to be anti-city and to keep feeding that with each other. Because we see, yes, the limitations of city, but yes, we see nature here and too. We, we, feel, we feel the life here. We feel the throb of the people as they go to work in the morning and return home at night. And we feel a vibrancy there, which our tight, strict concept of the city won't reveal to us. Because we're a, a prisoner of the image of what a city is. And it inhibits a liberating feeling of it. And I think too, and I think one of the important things with the teachings, spiritual teachings, has, in a way, in our acknowledgement of our life, and we see that if we move outside of the parameters of the city, I don't mean physical terms of going away, we don't need to do that. Moving outside the parameters of our idea of the city, and moving outside of that, we might have the opportunity in our life to expand out the field to include the parameters of our birth and our death. What would it be, as the tradition has said again and again, to really look at the accommodating principle of birth and death? Here we are, you and I, we're living our life in a somewhat uncertain world, and there between is the fields of birth and death and the whole range of experience. So I wrote a a little more um, personal perhaps than the other three but hopefully a poem which uh, in a way speaks for speaks for more than myself and I think again with the mindfulness with the activity of breathing as a direct reminder of organic life that remembering to breathe in daily life is a precious thing to remember we're remarkably skillful with our fax machines, not that I have one, but no doubt it'll be en route, and with, uh, and with our di di diaries. What are those thick diaries called? The, um, hmm? Weekly yeah, glance. Yeah, weekly glance, philo, <laughs> fax, 
organizers, etc. And friends in California have been telling me that sometimes when a person loses her or his organizer, they get into such a mess that, that these days there are now the um, psychotherapists to deal with people who have lost their organizers. <laughs> I mean, and there we have this image of California and, and, and etc. But how, <laughs> how easily, how easily, again, something which begins to matter to us, that with that, holding on to that, the fear, the fear, the fear of loss. The fear of, oh my God, if I lost this, I'd be in such a hell of a mess. How could I cope? How could I deal with it? How could I get through the day? So sometimes I think it's imp important that we take some of those things which we have built up a possessiveness about and really understand that life, as much as we would like it to be, simply isn't under our control in the way that we imagine and the countless circumstances can affect whatever. And if our vision isn't beyond the parameters of self-interest, we're going to be living our life from one day to the next, thinking in terms of, it's all rest with me, it's all up to me. And so sometimes we might take our thing which we're afraid to lose, whatever that may be, including our own life for that matter, as it were, and place that right in front of us and have some sense of something vaster than that, beyond that. And sometimes just to put that which we, that ring which has had sentimental value, which belonged to our grandmother and it's been passed down and now I've got it, I would hate to lose this ring and all the associations through, in a way, naive sentimentality. And there's no room for that in liberation. There's no room for that in, in, in really deeply inquiring because it in that sentimentality inhibits joyfulness. It inhibits great discovery. And therefore, to live with the way things unfold in the world is a tremendous challenge for us. So much so, I would say, that in a way, our whole life has to be offered to the world. We have to bring our whole life from our head to our to the thoughts and our feelings in a way and say this isn't mine this isn't, doesn't belong to me I didn't make for this I didn't produce this I'm not the creator of this it's come out of the vastness of the wonder of the nature of things it belongs to that let me give it back let, let, let me not, not live with this mythology it's me and mine the last breath when this last breath dissolves into the earth the blackberry bushes will rustle and the wheat will glisten in the wind and the crows will nest in spartan trees. The shades of the seasons will be indistinguishable. It will not be a long breath, this final act of homage to the ploughed soil with its furrows into posterity. There will be no marks on my grave, no signs of my existence. I have drifted unknown to myself in this ripple of warm vib vibrations. These spices of cardamom, cinnamon and ground ginger effortlessly dissolve where that blended taste rests like an invisible web in a summer's breeze. The pursued things of life have no merit 
for they forge a Spartan existence and have no gravitational pull. For my last breath warms the earth, allowing the winds to safeguard the dissolved line along the ocean where sand is wedged before the sway of the wheat. I will usher in my last goodbye without church services or prayers so that the trees may reveal the shade where the squirrel scrambles for safety and the rabbit halts in its tracks and the cloud dissolves under its own weight. For these are my last rites, my joyful requiem. For my final goodbye, I shall say thank you as my last breath becomes the wind and my body becomes the grains of sand. <coughs> May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. So let us have still a few minutes, quiet, silent period together, shall we speak? Thank you. Uh, any comments or questions? <coughs> Please uh, feel free to uh, ask or say. Uh, yes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Thanks again for a very nice talk. I made a special point to come here. Oh, thank you. And, uh, I uh, was just, uh, I, have, I have kind of um, two questions. One, um, about the heirloom, family heirloom. Yes. I have a, um, <laughs> <laughs> not the family jewel. <laughs> uh, I have, uh, my uh, mother knitted each of us children <laughs> a, um, an Afghan. Mm, and that um, she 
he uh, died about 12 years ago, and I often thought that um, one way to prove a lack of attachment was to either give it away or do something with it. Yeah. But I wasn't really sure about that. You know, I thought that there might be a great value of just allowing mm -hmm. it to be in the family for yes, a long sure. time. Mm -hmm. So, one, your, your thoughts about that, yeah. which in some ways you've already given, but two, as the mind begins to grow quiet in mm -hmm. the, the practice, um, <coughs> the after a while, the mind grows fairly still, yes. mm -hmm. but it's unable to grow more completely still. Right, right. And if there's any suggestions you have about helping that next yes. phase along. Yes, right. Um, the, f the first one, uh, with regard to the uh, item of clothing that your mother made, uh, it's neither the, the keeping nor the giving away, I feel, that is the, the matter. To me, what is m more important here um, is your relationship to that. <coughs> and here was something knitted from the past out of uh, kindness and thoughtfulness, and you have received it, and it's in your hands at present, and it may also pass on. That doesn't mean to say that in that there's any whisper at all of what I would call this lingering sentimentality. Because if there is, and s something happens to it, you know, some substance, you know, whatever it might be, all the things that can happen, if there's ling this lingering sentimentality, then one is going to feel loss, separation, and all the painfulness that can come out of it, which it doesn't deserve, firstly, and secondly, is that what one's mother wanted? So again, it's the relationship to it, which I think is an important amateur. With the second, with, uh, with uh, stillness, again, it's a very important theme in life, this stillness. And we might say it is one of the two, one of a number, particularly one of two elements in life which are frequently neglected. And the neglect of it shows itself in movement. And movement is in becoming and becoming is, I consider that this present is useful for me insofar as it will reward me or I will get something with regard to the future. This is, this is the becoming. This is the mind which is in movement, which in its looking at today, today not utterly unto itself a discovery, but today in order that, this in order that, it pursues us down the highways and the byways of our existence. So a very radical, radical means to get to the root of things, very radical is to allow all this becoming idea to fade away, that leaves a certain stillness. But as you pointed out there, in that stillness, because it's our inner life, there will be some degree of movement. Life is also movement. So there's some degree of movement which takes place and we notice that, even if it's just a subtle vibration of bodily life. Can, with them, when there is some stillness, you experience some stillness, have faith with that stillness. Have faith with that stillness. Whether that stillness is uh, very, very deep and subtle, or <coughs> whether there's a fair degree of movement. And I think this is when faith of a different order comes in. We often have faith that what we do will give us what we want in the future. This is unparalleled faith. And sometimes 
it works and sometimes it's a hit and miss, to be honest, isn't it? So we, so we also need faith in life, trust in life, so with stillness, there's the trust, there is some movement taking place, allowing in that stillness, like I mentioned with sitting in this armchair at home, one doesn't have to sit cross-legged, one doesn't get any extra points for that. <laughs> <laughs> and allowing ourselves to be still, just to be, to be still, and with trust. If we bring in suggestions, the how-to, because we're very much in a how-to culture, if we bring in the how-to, in fact, at best it would bring a, a short-term benefit, and the probability, the desire to make it more still, will generate more disturbance. Oh, most definitely. Yes, most definitely. And in other words, it's almost saying, myself, therefore my ego, whatever, myself wants to get it a bit better. I want to become more still. And it intrudes into life, into the stillness. So I say, forget the how-to, forget all the, all, all of that, forget the how-to book, burn those, all of those. <laughs> complete distraction. And just be still. Trusting that there's some movement there, but just trusting. And trusting in a mind which is not, 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 not mind. Not one own, not mind. And see, and see, and see. Yes, please, anyone? Yes, please. Uh, when I first saw the title of your talk, The Virtue of Living Life, yes. I had imagined that you were going to speak about um, something that was a bit different to a dream draft that you see or things like that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. life as we construe it to be, anyway, has emerged initially, of course, out of rural situation, out of uh, organic, uh, organic life. And the point with the talk there was that sometimes too narrowly, exclusively, we just see the blocks and we don't see everything else, the diversity. And I think bringing ourselves, as you pointed out there, our whole being, our whole being into the city. To spend one's life living in a city and constantly fighting it in all sorts of ways, constantly being in struggle with it, means in a way we're saying our heart's not with it. And then we fantasize and we create all these other scenarios elsewhere as a way of pulling ourselves back from the city. And I say, and as you're just pointing out and reminding me, I would say, 
let's be wholehearted about it. Let's give ourselves wholly to it. So there's no uh, resistance, no fighting. It's genuinely, a, a, a genuinely profound letting go into the fullness of city life. And therefore not thinking for a moment that the city life is just the straight <coughs> lines and, and the order and the efficiency in a timetable. That's a feature of the total. And then wholly, so there's no fighting, no resistance. And then we can discover tremendous which our resistances and our, and our struggling against and our hostility towards just inhibits opportunity. Please, yes. Yes, thanks. And then I, uh, <laughs> I lose my mindfulness yes. and come back and yes. judge me. And I don't like to do that. And I go back to the street. <laughs> 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 the, the, the familiar <laughs> story of mindfulness meditators, right? Yeah. Well, again, in the relationship to any area which we call practice, walking down the street, being mindful, keeping it as clear moment to moment as possible there. If I can just turn it round a, a, a little bit, could I um, ask you one or two questions instead of me <laughs> replying? <laughs> All right. So there's, there's a situation. You're walking down the street, going step by step at a time. Then there's a movement away from what's happening there. What's typical for you? What is it, would you like to say? What, what happens? What, is the, what, what sort of things on the mind wander to? What, what, what comes to mind? If you can think of any specific situation, let's have a look at this. It's interesting in these circles, as many times, when we all when we uh, laugh, it's a, I think it's always a sure sign everybody else knows his experience. <laughs> <laughs> it's complete empathy. <laughs> so there's a situation. One is walking down the, stre the street. One doesn't want to be lost past future. But then, as you point out, then comes in the judgment. Walking down the street is really good. Da, 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 da. And then the old mind comes in like a rocket. wonder where this is going to lead me to. I wonder what I'm going to get out of out of this. <laughs> so we use the old mind for the, the experience. What other otherness is available to us? Is that you see? You could be walking down the same street, and in a decade's time, you could sit here and say, Christopher, when I'm walking down the street, clop, 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 my mind wanders. It says, you know, how good is and there's some judgments taking place and the wonder and everything could remain the same quite possible what would be a radically different way of regarding the experience of mindfulness in the street 
not to keep it, try to keep it as some permanent thing, but what would be a completely different way of regarding it? Pure act of service. Right, I'm going to lean on him because he ventured. But, <laughs> 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 but, see, the, the okay, the thinking which met, there's the event, you're walking mindfully. The thinking is about the event. The thinking about the event is, you're thinking about it is, I wonder what would come from this. I wonder if this would be useful, whatever. Understandable thinking. I'm saying, think about it completely differently. What would, what, would, what would be a way of thinking about walking down the street mindfully quite differently? So it's got no, no, no whisper of getting something out of it. No whisper of personal benefit. What would be to look, regard quite differently? Completely afresh. It's a hard question, but there again, I only ask hard questions. If you want another way of thinking. You want another way of thinking, yes. No, 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 when thoughts come because there's the, the, an event if you have an event when any of us we have an event we have a thought about it it confirms it's an event <laughs> so I'm saying let's make the transformation of thought as, as much an event as the event understand let's make the transformation of thought as much an event as the event of the walking mindfully down the street yeah. what would be an utterly unfamiliar, fresh way of walking on the earth. Because that's what you're doing. But you think about it utterly differently. Wouldn't that be worth dwelling on? What's life? Life is an event and a, and a thought about it, a relationship to it. Your whole life is in that very moment. What would it be? I think sometimes you have to dig, dig deep. I wouldn't expect, honestly, uh, uh, an immediacy of answer here and now that would be unfair and too much pressure there. I guess my, my vision is that mindfulness will be strong and as the judgment comes up, uh, I'll be aware of it. Yes, but you are. You just expressed it, so you're just clearly aware of yeah, the judgment. Yeah, I'm aware, but actually in the situation I'm describing mindfulness mm. and then... Yes. The judging. But don't blur it out. Include it. This is life. The thought is included in the experience. The whole package goes together. Of course, we wish to be more mindful. We do reduce some of the potency of thinking. We feel that we've just got lost in our brains too much, too much. Just before coming here, if I may say, I was very kindly invited to speak at Harvard Divinity School there. Harvard certainly has a reputation for, for brains there. And, and I said, I think it's the responsibility of, uh, of the Harvard Divinity School to um, dig deep so that in that we find ways to touch something else. The rest of the whole faculty there, they can spend all their time in a kind of managerial conceptual framework of world 
But I do feel that spiritual life is to dig deep, to dig deeper into our resources inside of ourselves, which actually changes the way of thinking. Therefore, I said to the Divinity School, they have a responsibility at Harvard to be subversive. That's their responsibility. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.